You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Money is one of the most threatening topics that we can discuss because it has to do with life and safety and security. And we might just be talking about whether we want to take a vacation to Disney World or not. But at its core, it is tied to, am I going to be safe? Am I safe to live the life I need to live? Growing wealth while supporting your family isn't easy, but with a well-crafted plan, you can take on anything. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today because juggling finances can be overwhelming, but it is possible to find a better balance. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Valentine's Day is coming up, woohoo, which means that boxes of chocolates, they are flying off the shelves. Florists are no doubt working overtime. And if you have yet to make a Valentine's Day dinner reservation, I highly suggest you pick up the phone pronto or my favorite option, just punt. Plan a night in, avoid the crowds, avoid the price markups. This year, Americans are set to spend nearly $26 billion on Valentine's Day. That's billions with a B, according to the National Retail Federation. And in the spirit of all that cash being spent in the name of love, we are going to spend this episode digging deep into money and relationships. Specifically, we're going to talk about how and why couples argue about money. It is one of the most common conflicts that we face in our relationships. According to Fidelity Investments' most recent Couples and Money study, 44% of couples say they argue about their finances, and one in five say money is their greatest relationship challenge. Despite this, or maybe because of this, We don't like to have conversations about money. Another study, this one from Personal Capital, found that four in 10 people avoid talking about their finances with their partners. But no one can or should avoid these conversations forever because money is the foundation for pretty much every major relationship milestone. You want to plan a wedding, buy a house, have kids, prepare for retirement, In a strong relationship, you got to talk the money that is going to make all of those things possible. And that's exactly what we're going to help you with today. We're doing it all with Elizabeth Earnshaw. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist who spent more than a decade helping thousands of couples improve their relationship. She is the co-founder of couples counseling firm Ours Wellness, that's O-U-R-S Wellness, and author of the book, I Want This to Work, an inclusive guide to navigating the most difficult relationship issues we face in the modern age. Liz, welcome. So good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about money. You and nobody else. Nobody that's else. Okay. Our list- <laughs> I only want to talk about it with you. I don't actually want to talk about it with my husband or my friends or anything like that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I often don't want to talk about it with my husband either. I do talk about it with him and we will get into how we make that work. But what are the most common 
money issues that you see couples disagree or argue about? Yeah, so there's a lot of different issues that come up. They're kind of veiled issues, right? Like, should we spend spontaneously? Should we save? Are we supposed to have fun with our money? Or are we supposed to be more thoughtful and, and plan with our money? Is money here for us just to use while we live? Or is money here to save until we die? So these types of things come up again and again. But what we know from research in relationships is that when it comes to money and other types of issues that people argue about a lot, there are solvable issues within it, and then there's something called perpetual issues. Solvable issues are everyday issues. They have no deeper meaning. There is no vulnerability within them. It's something along the lines of, I don't care how we deal with this. I just got a bill in the mail. One of us has to call the insurance company who wants to do it, right? And the other person, there's no emotional experience to that. So they say, oh, I'll do it. I don't care. And where do you want us to get the money from? Do you want us to use it from our savings or do you want us to use it from our spending or what do we do? That's a solvable problem. They're annoying, they're issues, but we can talk about them and move forward. The most common issues though that we face in our relationships are perpetual problems. And this is the more emotionally volatile issue. This is an issue where for whatever reason, even though it should be solvable, even though there's absolutely a direct route forward, we don't actually get the solution. We get stuck, we get gridlocked, and we go in circles. Can you give me an example of what an issue like that might look like? Yeah, for sure. So for example, let's say that same bill comes in the mail. And I say to my husband, hey, I thought our insurance was supposed to cover this. What are we supposed to do with it? We'll know that it's a perpetual problem between us if I say something like, I think we should just pay it. And my husband says, hell no, we're not paying it. That's why we pay insurance. I'm going to call and argue with them. Now, if we're very good at navigating this difference between us and the way that we see dealing with money, it will become a solvable problem. One of us will say, whatever, deal with it your way. I don't care. But if it's an actual perpetual issue that we can't solve, what's going to happen is we're going to get gridlocked. And my husband's going to argue with the insurance company, and I'm going to get mad at him for arguing with the insurance company. I might send a check behind his back, and then he'll see that I sent it and say, why did you pay for that? So that's an example of one of those hard-to-solve issues between couples. What I think is so striking about an example like that is a couple of things. First, you're not really arguing about the money in the relationship at that point. You're arguing about the power. You're arguing about independence. You're arguing about autonomy, right? These are deeper issues that really relate to dollars and cents in a big way, but aren't necessarily about the money. And second, it has absolutely everything to do with the way that you were raised. We have on our website at Her Money something called a money type personality assessment. And basically it gets into your money story. Why are you the way you are with money? And it has everything to do with this home that you grew up in that you can't unlearn and that you can't unsee. And so these issues are a lot more complicated than dollars and cents. Absolutely. And if it has nothing to do with that underneath stuff, you figure it out. Couples don't have problems figuring it out when they can move past those things. But when they're not aware of them, they get stuck. And 
like you said, it's related to what I call with my couples legacy dreams or extinction dreams. So either I grew up in a certain way and I do not want that to happen again. I want it to go extinct. So I grew up with parents that just paid their bills without arguing them and they got effed over all the time and it was so ridiculous and that's why I don't do it anymore. Or I grew up with something I really respected and made me happy and I want to keep doing that. If we're on the same page, if we're both like, it was great growing up just paying things and moving on, we're not going to get into arguments. But most people did not grow up the same and they don't have the same dream for how they navigate that stuff. You alluded to the fact that a lot of people don't even know how they're wired. And if you don't know how you're wired, chances are pretty good you have no clue how your partner is wired. So how do you learn things about yourself? How do you learn these things about each other? And does that make it easier to talk about these issues? Absolutely. Even just this idea helps people. So before they even dig in, when I work with people in couples therapy and I'm like, look, This is not about whether it's right to pay it or wrong to pay it. This is more about what it is that you've experienced, what you believe, what your philosophy is in life because of those experiences. Even that initial understanding can really change things where people all of a sudden are able to say, oh, it's not just my partner blocking me and being a jerk. It's that we both have a different philosophy we need to understand. So one of the first conversations I have people share with each other is what are your shoulds around money? What do you think people should do? Should has to do with our philosophy. It doesn't actually have to do with what's right or wrong. So people can usually complete that sentence pretty easily. When it comes to money, I think people should. When it comes to paying bills, I think people should. You know, my husband could answer that very easily. I think people should really be cautious and make sure that they're paying for what they've actually received. I would say when it comes to paying them, get it off my countertop and send the check in. People should stop worrying about it. And if you can't pay them, then cut off the services, but just don't deal with it. That's my philosophy, which is not always the best one. But that can help people to at least get their philosophy out. I say, if you were king of the world or queen of the world, what would you say people are supposed to do? And people usually have a very strong opinion on that. Yeah. I mean, my should, I think people should not spend more than they have, right? Exactly. I think people should pay their bills on time. I think people should, you know, I do this for a living. So I could go on and on, but I also hear what you're saying and I definitely think that my husband, who I love very much, has a different list of shoulds than I do. So how do we, once we put out our shoulds and, you know, maybe we limit them, maybe we each get five or 10, (laughs) how do we come to a meeting of the mind that will allow us to cooperate? It's a great question. So one of the places that people get stuck the most is that they want to quickly move into coming up with a solution. And so over and over again, They come up with a solution within five seconds, and either that solution is to ignore it or it's to steamroll the other person, do it one way, and move forward. The most important thing that you could do at the beginning of this is to actually slow down and really try to understand the other person's should and humanize it because it's not just going to be like, okay, you think that people should do X, Y, and Z, and I think this, now we can move on and we'll have great solutions and neither of us will ever feel bad about it. So understanding and humanizing them starts with saying, where did that come from? The reason couples therapy is powerful is because we slow people down and we say, you actually have to understand this. I'm not just going to let you hop to solutions. So 
honey, where do you think you decided that it's so important to argue every cent on the bill? Where did you learn that? That is so humanizing to hear your partner say, when I was growing up, it was horrible. Like we had no money and you don't know when that could happen. It could happen tomorrow and every cent matters. You should save every cent. Or I watched my parents be taken advantage of. And that's why it's so important for me to always question these things and to not just take people's prices at face value. Once you can hear that, you can soften around your partner's perspective. And they need to ask you yours too. You know, where did you get your should from? Moving from that, then you want to talk about people's biggest fears. So if we don't do it your way, what is your biggest fear? What's the catastrophe that happens? You know, what's the daily fear and what's the catastrophe? The daily fear is just day in and day out, it's stressful. We have to worry about like whether we can pay for gas. The catastrophe is we lose our home. The catastrophe is we can't retire. The other side of the spectrum might be day in, day out, we're boring. We don't ever have any fun. We don't spend money. (laughs) The catastrophe is I die before I enjoy my life. So hearing those things can help you to open up to the reality that your partner's perspective isn't right or wrong. It's just different. And then you can move into what everybody wants to move into, which is, okay, what's our solution? How do we start dealing with these things? Have you noticed any difference? And I don't want to force people into tiny little boxes here, but I'm going to attempt to generalize a little bit. Have you noticed any differences in the way that men and women approach these questions? And again, any differences for people, whether they're in straight relationships or LGBTQ relationships? Yeah, for sure. So the generalization, and of course, Everyone's different, and I've seen it every which way. But if it is a hetero relationship, woman and a man, and they are talking about these things, the woman tends to have more articulation around feelings and has done more reflecting on how she's been impacted by her past. Does not mean that she's always accurate, but there's a lot more to say. And this is because from a very young age, women are trained to be talkers. We chit-chat with our dolls. We chit-chat at little fake tea parties. We go to sleepovers. We're talkers. Men, when they're answering these questions, they tend to not have had a lot of experience reflecting this way or using emotional language. So their answer to something like, what's your philosophy, might be like a shoulder shrug. I don't know. I just think you should be responsible with it, period. So luckily, when a therapist is there, they're able to say, What does responsible mean? Can you tell me more about that? It's really hard if people aren't there with a therapist to help pull that out because when the partner becomes the one pulling it out, sometimes their partner can be like, I don't know. Why do you keep asking me questions that I don't know the answer to, right? You might ask something like, where'd you learn about this in your childhood? Well, I don't don't know. My parents were responsible. That's it. Whereas a female is more likely to say something like, well, I remember when I was really little, my dad sat me down and he had this conversation and that impacted me, but it also impacted me because I overheard blah, 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 blah. And they'll tell the story. And again, this is just differences in experiences with how we utilize language and how we're used to talking about feelings and thoughts and experiences. And so something that really helps is when your partner, if your partner is a guy, If you give them the space to process in the moment, you have to remember that they might not have been processing this 
talking with their friends about it, all of those types of things that maybe you do. And, you know, if you're the one that struggles with it, asking your partner to let you process. Sometimes in male-female dynamics, what actually happens that's really sad is we shut the guy down by saying, why aren't you saying more? You haven't answered enough. You're not giving. And for them, they haven't even had enough time to think. So really like count to 20 in your head. When I work with same-sex couples, interestingly enough, regardless of whether you are in a hetero relationship or not, what tends to happen in same-sex couples is they actually tend to take on roles that were traditionally modeled to them. And so what might happen is within the couple, you might have one person who is more emotionally articulated. They want to talk about their feelings. They want to express what they're thinking. And another person who might feel less comfortable doing that. And this is because traditionally what's been seen in movies and in families and all sorts of things looks a certain way and people pick up those roles pretty quickly. And so that similar back and forth can absolutely happen in same-sex relationships where one person is on one end thinking, why are you not sharing your feelings with me? Or where is your insight? And the other person is like, what insight do you want from me? Um, I don't have any more. I'm giving you as much as I have. And so that same dynamic can play out. Sometimes it doesn't. And I would say with same-sex couples, it's a little less likely to play out than maybe with a male-female dynamic because there is often a little bit more insight with same-sex couples and a little bit more need to be vulnerable based on like systemic reasons for that with each other. So there are moments where they are more able to express themselves equally than maybe you would find in another relationship. I went to a couple's counseling session as a reporter early in my career, and the therapist used a lot of mirroring language, that it was very helpful if you were in a situation like this where it was a little harder to draw your partner out. She suggested reflecting back what you heard and allowing that to be corrected. So what I heard you just say, honey, was that when I go out and I spend more than I planned on on X, Y, and Z, it makes you frustrated because then you're not sure we're going to have enough left for the lights. Exactly. Mirroring back and showing true curiosity after the mirroring, which is very different than gotcha questions. Sometimes couples get stuck in those So mirroring exactly what you did was beautiful. And then maybe saying something like, I think I missed a part. Could you tell me more what you personally mean by this word? Or, you know, I'm kind of struggling to put my finger on why, you know, me spending money on gas makes the jump to us not paying for the lights. Can you walk me through how that's playing out in your head? You actually want to hear the answer. Sometimes people get themselves into a bad spot in conversations because they say things like, But isn't it true that last month you spent the same amount of money and we paid for the lights? Or I hear you saying that you don't want me to buy this. So they'll use a gotcha question and they'll say something that sounds like a question, but it's actually a statement. And so you want to ask open-ended questions, not gotcha questions. And you want to actually allow that person to correct you if they need to. So saying, did I miss something? Am I not getting this right? And if they correct you, being able to just say, oh, thank you so much. That makes total sense. I know that sometimes these conversations escalate and they go from calm conversations to 
louder conversations. There may be tears involved. There may be, you know, angry language that you don't even mean to have pulled out and brought to the table. I want to talk about how do we deal with that and how do we quiet it down. But before we get there, I also want to remind everyone that conversations like this are brought to you by our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. And when we talk about things like raising kids and caring for aging parents and planning for retirement, it is a lot to manage, especially when you're trying to grow your wealth at the same time. If you visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, you can schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. You'll learn strategic ways to help meet your financial obligations, all while remaining focused focused on your own needs and dreams. With a well-crafted financial plan, you'll be ready for all of life's competing priorities. So schedule your free appointment today at planefe.com slash hermoney. I am talking with Liz Earnshaw, couples therapist and co-founder of the relationship counseling company, Hours Wellness. All right. So we are having a conversation, me and my significant other, and it is not going well. And my eyes start to well up and I start to raise my voice. And how do we get from a heated situation back down to ground zero? Yeah. So learning how to do that again, and I'm like a broken record with this, starts with understanding why that even happens. So sometimes we just get upset because it's just upsetting. Sometimes, though, that is a very physiological response. Money is one of the most threatening topics that we can discuss. Why is that? Because it has to do with life and safety and security. And we might just be talking about whether we want to take a vacation to Disney World or not. But at its core, it is tied to, am I going to be safe? Am I safe to live the life I need to live? And so also a lot of people have experienced financial abuse growing up. They might have watched control, power, domination, all sorts of things with money. And so there's a lot that's connected to that, not just in our minds, but physiologically. And when we talk about stressful topics, our body has a reaction. So we're not just reacting cognitively, we're reacting physically. If that topic feels manageable, if we feel the other person is being responsive and we believe there's going to be an outcome that's pretty good, our bodies can usually manage that stress, dependent on how stressed we are that day. So we might notice our heart racing or we're about to tear up, but we can take a deep breath and we can continue the conversation. Sometimes, though, if something feels particularly threatening and there's no exact description of what that could be for what is threatening to you might not feel threatening to me and vice versa. Our bodies, what they start to do is they start to dump stress hormones. And these stress hormones are meant to protect us. And what they do is they slowly turn off the parts of our brain that we don't need. And they light up the parts of our brains that keep us safe in the moment, not long-term safe in the moment. So what happens is it's interesting. The very first part that turns off is our relational center. So our ability to access things that make it easy to be in relationship with people, that turns off. I can no longer show affection. My mouth starts to get dry, and so it's hard for me to get words out. I'm not able to be curious. I'm not able to problem solve. 
and sense of humor goes out the window. So one way you know that your relational center has turned off if you're usually the type of person that somebody can poke fun at or say a joke and you say something all of a sudden like, this isn't funny. You've lost your ability in that moment to be relational. So what happens when our relational center turns off is we either go into a fighting mode We get really angry, we start to yell, we try to pressure the other person into our position. We freeze, so we just don't share anything, or we leave. And so that might look in a relationship like saying, I'm done having this conversation, I'm out of here, and we go into the basement or we drive off to the grocery store or something like that. So the first thing to understand is when that's happening, your body is in control. And if your partner is getting that way, No matter what you're saying, you're trying to make a joke. You're saying, can I have a hug? You're saying, let's problem solve. It doesn't matter. They can't hear that. So the best thing to do in those moments is to say, hey, let's come back to this later. It takes at least 20 minutes for those stress hormones to dump out of your body. So take breaks and come back to the conversation. Now, if you're in the conversation and it's upsetting, but you can still accept affection and curiosity and humor and all of those types of things then what can you do to stay in it? And what you can do is be vulnerable about what your internal state is. So saying things like, I'm crying right now because I'm feeling really overwhelmed or I really like, I know you can tell my face is angry. I am super angry. I feel like you're not listening to me. Expressing that internal state can actually help you to calm down. And then last but not least, making sure that you're being clear on what it is that you want from the conversation can be really hard when you're upset, but even if it's something in the moment, like all I need right now is a hug or all I need is for us to pick a time where we're going to sit down and really talk about this. But really trying to attend to your body is the number one way to help you to stay in those conversations. This is the most helpful conversation about money and relationships that I think I've ever had. Oh, yay. I just want you to know that because you're telling, I mean, I've been reporting on this for a really long time and you are telling me things that I've never heard before and that are resonating as particularly true. I had a thing with my husband over the weekend because he went to play tennis in the morning and he asked me to pick up, there was a big football game on. We live in Philadelphia. Me you too. eat hoagies when there are, oh, <laughs> there you go. So you eat hoagies in big football games. And yes. so he asked me to pick up a hoagie and I know how he likes his hoagies. He likes it with lettuce, tomato, hot and sweet peppers, oil and vinegar, and no onions. But the guy put onions on his hoagie and when he opened it up, it was full of onions and he was like, there are onions. Not remembering that I went out to get him the stupid hoagie and I shut down. Sure. I completely like if this was fight, flight, or freeze, I was out of there. Just like, you know, done with him in that moment. And it was fine. And we got over it in a short period of time. But I actually felt in my own body what you were just describing right there. So I totally get it. Look, as you said at the beginning, we need to talk about money. We need to not talk about it sporadically. We need to talk about it on a regular basis. How do we get ourselves to make it a part of our rituals and take as much of the angst out of it as possible? Beautiful to use the word ritual because that is how the angst goes away. It's more that you make it a ritual and the more that you are talking about it, the less threatening it becomes. It's just a conversation that we have like any other conversation. 
I always recommend to my couples, and it depends on how busy you are and what your life looks like and all of that, but ideally that you're meeting once a week to talk about the big things in your life. And the first time you have the meeting, it might take two hours, but if you're doing it every single week, it takes way less time. And I call this the State of the Union meeting. Every single Sunday, that's usually when people pick, They, you sit down and you ask each other, what went well this week? How did I shine for you? What did I do that was really great? Let me tell you what you did that was really great. How did we not show up for each other this week? What do we need this coming week? And now let's look at the big topics in our life. And usually they're things like money, responsibilities for the coming week, romance. Those are the three for most people. And then there's other things added on depending on like if you have kids or, you know, you own a business together or whatever. But sitting down and saying, how's money looking? You know, how are we both feeling about it? And once you know each other's philosophies, you can have really cool conversations. My husband and I, we used to be terrible at this. We're much better now. I'm like, how are you feeling? I bought this really out of control purchase this past week. You know, you don't love that. How do you feel about it? And he can tell me, I don't feel good. Can you please promise not to do that for another month or whatever? And I can say, absolutely. I recognized when I did it immediately, it wasn't the right thing to do. And he can ask me the same thing. How are you feeling? We've been saving money and we haven't gone on a trip in a while. Like what's going on for you? And I can express, yeah, I'm feeling really stagnant. Like I I want to redo the bedroom. Can we work together to like get more wallpaper or something like that? So you can talk about how you're feeling based off of your philosophies, but then also look at concrete things. You know, what's in our bank account? What bills do we have upcoming? If you're in my marriage, I'm asking my husband who he's arguing with this week about the bills. <laughs> he's asking me who I'm just irresponsibly paying, even though they probably didn't even give me the service. <laughs> but being able to check in every week, it's not a thing anymore. It's just, this is a part of our checklist. We deal with it. We are going to leave it right there. This is, again, so helpful. Liz, where can our listeners find? I know they're going to want to follow you. So where can they find out more about you? Yeah, so the easiest place is my website, which is elizabethearnshaw.com. You can find links to my Instagram, which is at Liz Listens, my book, I Want This to Work, and also the link to ours, which is where you can get support for your relationship and have the conversations you're avoiding, like conversations about finances in a really kind of unique and modern way. So the easiest place, definitely my website, elizabethearnshell.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for this today. And we will talk to you again soon, I hope. Yes, thank you. Before we roll into our mailbag, just a reminder that Her Money is supported by BCU, one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. BCU helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, services, and caring support members need for whatever stage of life they're in. Find out if you're eligible by visiting bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle is in the house for mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I completely agree with you. She had advice that I had never heard before. Never heard before. And I've been in therapy, couples therapy, (laughs) never heard it before. So no, I thought she made a ton of sense and just was really non-judgmental in a way that you expect from therapists, but also in a way that I felt was very her money. Right. Very her money in the way that she's like, we've all got stuff. We've all got stuff. We've all got partners with stuff. We're all coming into relationships with different perspectives and maybe some PTSD from some things in our past. And we've just got to work through it. 
we've just got to put in the work to talk through it and work through it and we can get there. We can all get to a better place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I alluded to earlier and I will just acknowledge it again. I talk about money every day for work. I don't particularly like to talk about it with my husband. I don't. (laughs) I mean, and so we schedule it. You know, we know that we're going to have a conversation and we just put it on the books and we get it done and it's always fine. It's not contentious. And even though it's not contentious, I don't like to do it. And so if you're listening to this show and you don't like to do it, I think that's just really normal. So how do we move through all the things that we don't like to do with regard to money matters? Like, is there any one best thing for pushing through all of it? I think you just schedule it and start it, right? I mean, I didn't really want to go out and run five miles yesterday morning, but by the time I was into mile three, I was really happy. And by the way, for anybody who is looking for a playlist, the soundtrack It's not the soundtrack. My friend, Jesse, who's the Times reviewer, will be upset with me for calling it a soundtrack. It's an original cast album. It's a cast recording. But anyway, the original cast album from the musical Six is unbelievable. And if you're looking for some girl power, it's fantastic. Peloton is running a series of classes from Six, but you don't need to be a Peloton member to listen to the music from Six. I have it in my brain at this point. Wow. I've never even heard of this. I got to check it out. Oh my God. You have to go. It is about the six wives of Henry VIII, and they have all gotten together to form a band. And the leader of the band is the one who inspires the most sympathy for her story. And they take turns telling their story. It's a rock musical. It is so much fun. And it's only an hour and a half without an intermission. So you just go in, you watch it, you go eat. I love it. Head to Carmine's immediately. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Let's take some questions. Our first question today comes from Rebecca. She writes, Hi, Jean. I've heard you speak before on the topic of couples and money, specifically the topic of postnuptial agreements. My question is postnuptial adjacent. Once I've combined my finances with my spouse, we have the same credit card, same banking account, same savings account, etc. Is it difficult to separate things? My husband and I have very different spending styles, and I've begun to feel like we'd be better off if we had completely separate finances with a single joint account for bill pay. What are my best options here? Thanks for a great show. And thanks for a great question, Rebecca. Let's take this step by step. And the first thing I want to do is just define a postnup. A postnup is very much like a prenuptial agreement. It is a legal document that specifies how you are going to handle the money either in a marriage that is ongoing or after you divorce, should you ever divorce. It lays out the terms, but unlike a prenup, which is something that you sign before you get married, this is negotiated and signed after you get married. Not every state allows them, but the vast majority do. So that is just something to keep in mind. In your case, I don't think that you are necessarily looking to separate assets legally. 
And we should be very clear on this. Once you have commingled assets in a marriage, once you've commingled your assets to buy a house, for example, or taken out debts on a joint credit card, they do belong to both of you. And were you to go into divorce, a lawyer would look at them as marital assets and approach them not as if they were your separate property. If there are assets in a marriage that you've never commingled, like you got an inheritance and you parked it over to the side and you didn't use it for the benefit of the marriage, that would be treated as if it were your own. But I don't think that's what you're talking about here. I think you are finding, just as you said, that maybe having such hands-on each other's finances as a joint pool of money is causing more tension than perhaps it needs to. And so I don't know that I would approach it from the point of saying, I want to separate everything. I might think about it as adding on so that you have this joint account, joint savings account, joint checking account, maybe those become your household accounts. And then you each get a separate savings account for your own needs or a separate checking account for your own needs. You should have a credit card that is in your name only, as should he or at least one where you are the primary person on that credit card. But if you approach it as, I'd like a little bit of autonomy, I'd like a little bit of money that is my own, then you don't have to shake up the whole way things are working now. You can just start to parcel it out a little bit differently. And I think because this is going to require a conversation with your husband about, as Liz was saying, why you're feeling the way you're feeling, this may be an easier conversation to have. So think about why you're feeling this way. Think about what is feeling risky to you, what's feeling uncomfortable to you, why you think you would enjoy having money in your own name, and refine that conversation in your head and then tell him that you want to have a conversation about having some money of your own and you think maybe he would enjoy that as well and see where it goes. Yeah, Jean, you know, I had the same thought, like, where is this coming from? Because if it's just his desire for more autonomy, that's one thing. But if this is the move because they haven't been able to talk about their finances, then that's another. You know, I think separating your finances is not the solution if you guys can't have a peaceful conversation about it. But if you just want a little bit of breathing room, then I think it's great. You're right, because the Big question here also is, is this system working in moving you toward your joint goals? Yeah. Right? If you've got savings goals, if you've got a house that you want to buy, if you've got vacations that you want to take, and something about the way that it's working right now is preventing those things from happening, that has to be addressed as well. And you may find that you want a little bit of help with this. A couples therapist, somebody like Liz, could certainly provide that kind of help. So can many financial planners. 
in getting to know the financial planners from Edelman Financial Engines, I have really watched how they are therapists a lot of the time. They navigate situations where they become that impartial third party. And sometimes that's helpful too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great points, Jean. Thank you. Sure. Our next question today comes to us from Megan. She writes, hi, Jean. I'm getting married in the spring and I'm curious how my wife and I can share a window into one another's bigger picture finances with retirement and investment accounts. She and I have talked about everything together, debt, savings, big financial life goals, and we're thankfully on the same page. But it seems like every app I've found for couples and money focuses on day-to-day expenses or household budgeting rather than bigger picture retirement planning and investing. But maybe there are no apps that help couples look at one another's retirement and investing. How can we get this window into one another's lives? Let me know your thoughts on how we can succeed at the big and the small of our financial lives. So grateful for your show. Oh, well, thanks, Megan. Congratulations to you and your future wife. That's very exciting. And you're right. Most of the apps focus on budgeting. And it doesn't sound like that is really an issue for you. One of the problems with retirement accounts Things like IRAs, individual retirement accounts, and 401ks is that they are individual. You don't put your partner on that same account. They don't sign on to the same online portal that you do in order to look at it. And so it requires you very specifically to look at how much you're putting into these investment accounts, where that money is going, how is it being allocated, and you want to pay attention to your asset allocation as a couple so that you are taking the appropriate amount of risk to get you to your goals, as well as whether you're on track for things like retirement. With a taxable brokerage account, it's a little easier because you can have a joint brokerage account, one that you share with your spouse. But to be quite honest, this is where I found financial advisors to be very helpful because they can create a plan that takes both of your financial lives into consideration and merges them in working toward the same goal. You could absolutely do this yourself. I mean, you could sit down, you could figure out when do we want to retire, and you could look at how much you're making on your investments each year, your savings rate, and whether that money is going to get you or the the likelihood that that money is going to get you where you want to go. But I do think that this point in your life might be a time to sit down with a planner for a checkup where you can get yourselves on a single program marching in the right direction. By the way, it's not something that you have to do every single quarter. It's not something that you have to do even every single year. You can sit down with a planner and and do a check-in, a one-time check-in. You can pay a planner by the hour if you want to do something like this rather than going with the assets under management model where you pay them on an ongoing basis. And it also occurs to me that You might like the two of you to 
join our investing fix program. I think if you both are looking at your investments and it's something that you're interested in learning about, our classes, the ones that I run with Karen Feinerman from CNBC, about how to evaluate and then choose individual stocks and ETFs might be kind of fun for you. So let me just invite you to sample that as well. And if that's something that you're interested in, you just let us know and we'll help you get signed up. Yeah, absolutely. Write me back and I will send you all the details. Yeah. Or she can go to investingfix.com, right? I mean, that's the easy way to do it too. We spell investing fix with two X's. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks. And in today's Thrive, let's talk a little bit about budgeting. When it comes to your finances, some of the biggest changes you'll experience in your life, they're going to happen in your 30s. You might get married, buy a house, have kids. You could also be moving up in your career, transitioning to a new industry, even starting your own business. All of these changes can have a huge impact on your day-to-day budget and your future, which is why it's important to take a step back and make a plan. At hermoney.com, we have a checklist of the biggest financial goals for your 30s and how you can achieve them. First, it's time to try to maximize your earnings. Building long-term wealth isn't just about spending less. You also need to be earning more. At this point, you've probably been in the workforce for maybe a decade, maybe more, and you've developed a lot of skills that can get you that higher salary. If your current company hasn't come to the table with a raise or a promotion in years, don't be afraid to look for other opportunities. Once you get the income bump, make sure to put a good chunk of it towards savings and be cautious of lifestyle creep. It can be really tempting to use a raise or a bonus to buy a bigger house or a newer car, but if you always spend down your extra money, then your overall expenses will keep rising. Try to save the majority of these raises so you'll have enough money to replace your salary in retirement. Next, If you have kids or you're planning too soon, go ahead and start saving for their college expenses. I know it may feel a little premature to think of college if your kids haven't started walking or talking, but it doesn't take much work to open an account. And the earlier you contribute, the longer your money has to work for you. Money invested in a 529 college savings plan grows tax-free. So over the course of a decade or more, you gain a lot in compound interest. Last but not least, schedule regular financial check-ins with yourself or your partner. The meetings that Liz was talking about, the states of our union. Sit down with your budget every month or every quarter. See what's different. Are you saving more or less? Maybe you have more money left over every month than you thought. Keeping a pulse on your cash flow can ultimately help you worry less and keep you focused on your long-term goals. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Liz Earnshaw for showing us how we can build stronger relationships through open and honest conversations about money. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.